0: Oh, and we're locked. Shit! Oh, he wasn't playing around. No, he was not playing around. But, um, if you guys hear a phone ring, that's Arun's uh, bed. <laughs> Is our all three lights red? Valid question. Yes, Arun, sir. Confirm. Yep. So and- you are in fact recording.
1: One, two, three.
0: And you did relabel the episode.
1: Yes, sir.
2: Wow! Look at him. He's on top of his game now. I think we're. I think he's he's earned it. I fucked up, has up he enough done? times. He
1: has. He, he, has, he has.
2: No, I haven't.
0: You fucked up twice, bro. It's it's not like it's like.
3: So did I, huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? This is. Yeah. It's late
0: night, everybody. Right, let's get into the uh, show notes. Can you move to the right, please?
1: Yes, sir. Wait.
0: There you go. All right. Welcome back to the number one financial literacy podcast in the world, where. Mistakes are part of being human. <laughs> Sponsored by Saeed Narun.
2: Yeah. Because Chris doesn't make any mistakes.
0: Nope. My wife tells me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Welcome back to the show, everybody. Sitting next to me is my partner in crime, Chris Nahibi.
0: And unfortunately, my partner in a very, very, very long time, Saeed Omar, everybody. <laughs> unfortunately for him. Behind the ones and twos, DJ Arun, sporting his new Schvelt physique. Fresh off an evening dinner of chicken and rice, he's that, a different human.
1: Yes, he he's. He, Where did we get the chicken and rice from,
0: Chris? Chilies. <laughs> it's a place for ribs. I did not eat. I did not eat the chicken and rice from Chili's. Just want to make sure that's on the record. Okay, okay look. For, in my defense, here's what happened. Okay, I typed in chicken. Okay, right. Everything that came up was fried. I went with the first picture I saw mm-hmm. that was not fried, and this was like a grilled chicken. So I got grilled chicken, broccoli, and rice. Right. And then I happened to hit, you know, order. I didn't even look where it was from. And then when I was ordering, I was like, shit, chilies. Yeah. It's like, that's awkward. But Depend you also
2: said on the record that you'd rather have chicken and rice from chilies than from Chipotle.
0: Yes. Why? Wow, that was a very aggressive why. He <laughs> <You> owns stock. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about your loyalty? I don't know what it is. And again, maybe I'm the only person here, but every time I have Chipotle, the fucking sodium in that shit. Yeah. It makes me feel, like, swollen afterwards. But you were so adamant. You're like, absolutely not. Like, it was something like you knew. You knew something. I've had food poisoning from Chipotle once. Okay, then that yeah. makes sense. I had, I had a bad experience. Not to say that chili is any better. I just haven't vomited after any one of their meals yet. But, you know, tonight's early. We might, we might have a, an experience. <laughs> yeah, we got time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am having a coffee at fucking 10 o'clock at night. 11. Eleven. Shit. Well... um, Hope you guys like long episodes, (laughs) because I'm going all night, baby. All night long. Look at you. Nobody? Nobody. Nothing. Okay. Well, uh, today was an interesting day. So uh, GDP came out, and the print, well, it was not exactly what I would call ideal. Or an accurate depiction. Yeah. Well, there's that. Um, We're going to go ahead and call GDP bullshit um, (laughs) from now on, because a lot of what's coming out is skewed. Skewed. Right. Is that a good word? It is. Manipulated. Right. Misleading. Uh, yeah. That's a good one. Misleading. Arun, you got anything to contribute to our M conversation?
1: No, you guys are good. Oh,
0: okay. okay. Glad to know you're still, still there. Yeah. Strong GDP growth isn't a sign the U.S. has escaped a recession. And because I went down the uh, rabbit hole,
2: I put some charts together. which I think we're gonna this show may need to change its name
0: to Down the Rabbit Hole. Down the Rabbit Hole? <laughs> we always reference
2: Down the Rabbit Hole. I like it. It yeah. reminds
0: me of Alice in Wonderland. I could use it later on for latent sexual commentary. Very
2: creepy yet deep movie for, for kids. Really? Yeah. Alice in Wonderland? There was the rabbit in there. I'll, I'll never forget there was a quote in the movie that's talking to Alice and it said, forever doesn't always last forever. Sometimes forever can just be
3: one second. A quote from the movie. Why, why is that creepy? I mean, that's so, such a deep meaning. There's so much meaning behind that.
2: Okay, why is that creepy? I mean, for a kid? What I mean, Alice in Wonderland was made for what age group? What age? How many
0: cartoons have you seen that have adult jokes in it? A lot. It's not a joke, bro. That's that's deep meaning behind it. Oh, okay. A, there's adult jokes and there's deep meaning. Cl- which? How long have you spent watching Alice in Wonderland? No, that's just something that always kind of stuck with me. Are you referencing the original cartoon or Johnny Depp? No, the original cartoon. Okay, well, I mean, different times, baby. Yeah. You didn't watch Bambi and start. I actually crying didn't your watch the one with Johnny Depp. What? It was that good? Where he was a Mad Hatter. Yeah, man. It's pretty fucking good. Was it? Yeah. I feel like you're a. Undeniable, bro. I feel like you're a big Johnny Depp guy. Yeah, I like Johnny Depp. I think, well, I shouldn't. Pirates of the Caribbean got a little played out, but uh, when he's like deep into acting, like where, you know, he's playing characters and that's, you know, that's his thing, Mm -hmm. it's good, man. But yeah, but deep in, I mean,
2: what do you expect? He signed a contract with Disney. He's going to look what happened to Eddie Murphy.
0: Yeah, career went downhill after that. He's Mm -hmm. had. Eddie Murphy's rumored to have signed a hundred million dollar contract. And then obviously everything pretty much after the clumps went mm-hmm. to
2: shit. People call him a sellout. I'm telling you right now,
0: I would have sold out too. Dude, he sold out and never like went back to work again. Yeah. He's like, "Fucking, I'm out. Yeah. And then when you talk to him on interviews, he's like, yeah, I don't really like,
2: I mean, he was rumored really to like- wanting to go back on tour again yeah, for yeah. a comedy, but then COVID hit, right?
0: COVID. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Pre COVID. I'm telling you right now, if he would, if he ever does that, I don't care when, I'm going. Yeah, have to. Yeah, I just hope it's vintage Eddie Murphy. You're
2: taking me, right, over the anybody else? No. Got it. No, definitely not you. Lost that tonight?
0: No, you didn't lose it tonight. I just, you know. I know how you don't like abrasive commentary and... I don't like
2: abrasive commentary? No, no,
0: you can't handle really inappropriate jokes. Me? Yeah. Got and it. You've got an image to uphold. <laughs> I do. <laughs> You're a stand-up citizen. Now, Arun, on the other hand, and I are... Open into debauchery Okay. Arun, you know what that means? Nope. Really? OK. All right. well, I guess that explains your bachelor party. <laughs> SAT vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, moving on, we'll talk about Jamie Diamond, who's ripping Central banks a new asshole for being 100 percent dead wrong. the The Fed Raphael Bostic. Well, he doesn't foresee rates cuts coming until late uh, 2024, and I will say that is a growing rhetoric. Uh, people that I'm close to are now saying, hey, we might even get rate cuts until 2025, baby. I think we mentioned on the last episode. Yeah, so that that's, uh, we'll get into Bostick's commentary and his take on it. And then M&A to explode in 2024 as roughly 1,200 companies are expected to run out of money. And this is why the capital markets are dry. This is why everybody's waiting. They're waiting to say, hey, I'm not going to buy you now. I'm going to wait until I'm going to get a good deal on you and then. You know, we're going to go ahead and do that. Right. So should we jump into GDP? Let's do it. Yeah, you know me. Mm-hmm. Hey. Look at you. Oh, no? Yeah. I got to tell you, man, the, what the fuck with you two? What do you is mean? Is it that late where I can't get any enthusiasm out of you? Us. You're okay. But that fucking guy in there is definitely not. He, Arun, perk the fuck up, man. He's. You know what it is? He's what? itching.
2: He's he, he's read some of the articles. He's got questions down below. Oh, does he really? He's like, he's itching.
1: He's got the questions ready to go. Arun, is this true?
0: <laughs> yes. Just my ears deceive me. Yeah.
1: Come on, man. I've come I've come in with questions the last two episodes.
0: No, you did. I mean, and and uh, They've been great. Yeah, they've they've been good. It actually kind of makes us look stupid,
1: but that's fine. Yeah, maybe <laughs> hey, Chris. Bro, the best hey. part is no, I ask Said every time, but Chris just, you know, what Chris does is uh, he takes over the mic and answers the questions. Mm-hmm. Oh Said liked that one. I, I like that one. So
0: you guys, it usually doesn't come after you like yeah. this. This is this is this is new for me. I don't know how to react. I'm very, <laughs> feeling very awkward about it. All right, well, uh, fuck me, right? Okay, so uh, CNBC: U.S. GDP grew at 4.9 percent an annual pace the in the third quarter, uh, better than expected. Well, according to the article you'll hear, expected was 4.7 percent, so nothing too crazy. This article came out today, Thursday, October 26th. Gross domestic product, the measure of all goods and services produced in the United States, rose to a seasonally adjusted 4.9% annualized pace in the July through September period, up from an unrevised 2.1% pace in the second quarter, the Commerce Department reported. Thursday, today, the 26th. Economists surveyed by Dow Jones had been looking for a 47 acceleration in real GDP, which also is adjusted for inflation. Consumer spending, a measure by personal consumption expenditures, increased 4% for the quarter after rising just 0.8% in Q2 and was responsible for 2.7 percentage points of the total GDP increase. Inventories contributed 1.3 percentage point Yeah. <laughs> points. Ah, too much caffeine, damn mm. it. Gross private domestic Investments surged 8.4 percent, and government spending and investments jumped 4.6 percent. Mm-hmm. Spending at the consumer level split fairly between goods and services, with the two measures up 4.8 percent and 3.6 percent, respectively.
2: Yeah, so that uh, that other figure that's known as nominal GDP, right? That mm-hmm. that's basically an, as as Chris read it. There's two types of way that they can measure GDP, right? The gross domestic product. There's one that accounts for inflation and there's one that doesn't count for inflation. Yeah. Right. That's all that is really. Um, the way to look at GDP really for those are that are uninitiated, think of it as just like a big scoreboard, you know, where they're keeping track of all the goods and services that have been, you know, there's been the consumption, government spending, all these things that they're just keeping track of throughout the year. And If it's a positive percentage, then we're in a relatively healthy spot. Theoretically, right? That's the way people look at it. That's what it's supposed to be signaling,
0: right? GDP really means economic growth. Economic
2: growth, right? And it's just a way to gauge and measure how healthy a country's economy is, okay? And um, to do a little bit of a breakdown on what GDP is, I don't know if you can scroll up a little bit. I put some, some of my notes right here. So GDP really is just, Several things put together. There's consumption. How's that feel? It's not done yet. Slow roll me. There you go. <laughs> Good job. There's consumption. There's investment. There's government spending. And there's net exports, right? Consumption is just all the stuff that we spend money on, okay? Um, it could be everything from your Starbucks, right, to buying homes. I mean, you name it, okay? That makes up generally 70% of GDP, Generally speaking,
0: I think for this report, uh, it, it made up sixty-eight percent. Right. So for references or for reference purposes, goddamn, my, my, I shouldn't speak tonight at all. So for reference, consumer spending is about seventy-ish percent of GDP, right? Of our GDP for right. other countries is normally fifty percent, right? And again, part of what the Fed is doing is going to have an impact on consumer discretionary spending or consumption. It should. It should, and it's not, according to the data we've seen today. As consumers stop spending, and they pull back from their spending, in theory, GDP should go down. What we're seeing now, unfortunately, is GDP going up, and consumer spending has not actually stopped. It seems to have accelerated. And when you have a
2: positive GDP figure, mind you, this percentage is 4.9 GDP print, okay? That generally should be meaning that people are in a, a good place. They're in a very good place with a lot of, you know, positivity around the corner. That's not that's not the case. So the fact that the cons- just because 70 percent of GDP is made up of a consumption, that doesn't mean people are spending responsibly. Think about it. If we're saying credit card debt's hitting all time highs and GDP is made up of 70 percent of the report. Well, people are relying on their credit. To maintain their lifestyles
0: did you happen to notice what the the, the two uh highest spending categories were for consumer spending i did not uh hospitality and travel
3: no
2: kidding yeah. oh that makes sense
0: yeah yeah we, it, with it all seems... those jobs
2: added over the last few months that we kept referencing
0: right yeah it, it's it's wild to me that that's that's the thing that people are spending on but it, it, it's real it, yeah. it's what they are um so we talked we talked we
2: talked about consumption. also, another component of GDP right is investments, right? That just measures how much uh, businesses spend on things like buildings, land, equipment, and even buying a home. The other component that actually uh, the report alluded to was government spending played a role in this as well. That's when uh, you have local and state national governments spend on things like roads, schools, and defense, right. And lastly is you have your net exports. A lot of countries have a negative number because they bring in more products than they actually send out. Mm.
0: Government spending in particular is what I think is partially going to prop up GDP over the coming months, particularly walking into an election year. And if you want to put your tinfoil hat on and get all conspiratorial on this stuff, you could argue that uh, a president in power tends to be reelected during wartime circumstances at a much higher probability. So that combined with wartime efforts also include government spending. And that government spending also, as Saeed told you, props up GDP. Mm -hmm. Not saying that's true, that's what's happening. Obviously there's a lot of geopolitical unrest at the current particular time. But I am saying that these things do have an impact on the economics Mm -hmm. and they are undeniable. Go walking into what is a November 5th, 2024 election, As you start to hear things, keep that in the back of your mind, how much this actually benefits the political party trying to stay in power.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Something, a stat that I got that I actually did not know about that I think will surprise you too Mm. um, was of the last 12 recessions recorded. Okay, remember, what a re- what, what's a recession, right?
0: Two negative quarters of GDP growth, baby.
2: C- two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, meaning that this figure that we just reported would be a negative figure, right? Uh, this is a positive figure, 4.9% to be a negative, some, something it could be as low as negative 0.01%, right? Mm-hmm. If that's what the uh, National Bureau of
0: Economic Research would declare. Okay? I'm not sure
2: they're still alive. <laughs> would well, they have been oddly, yeah. we said.
0: I think they all got laid off. We haven't checked on them. Yeah, they're all laid off. I'm, if you know anybody who works at the National Bureau of Economic Research and you haven't heard from them in some time and you're worried, we are too. I wonder if they're over there like, man, the Fed Reserve has an Instagram account. Does that mean we got to get one now? They're for sure all working from home, remote. <laughs> Have to. Yeah. They're all like got like outdoor hobbies. Yeah. Kayaking. Hiking. <laughs> and they're like, you know what? <sighs> I just don't know if we can call it yet. I'm going to need more time.
2: Yeah, we're going to need more yeah. time. So... This stat that I got from, again, the guy from Clear Value Tax over there. You love that dude. Love him. He provides great data. He gets straight to the point. So he says, the, the last 12 recessions, the quarter before the recession started, meaning if there's two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, right, that first one that's negative, the quarter before that has always been a very strong quarter, okay? Mm-hmm. On average, they're about 2.6%. That's on average for the last 12, okay? Okay. The average of the next quarter, which is the original or first quarter of negative GDP growth, drops 3.5 percentage points. Mm. That's the last 12 on average. So we cited, now that this this came out and we, we know that it's a positive print of 4.9% and you need two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth to trigger a quote-unquote recession by the old definition because we know the White House no longer sees it that way.
0: No, it- They're they're full of shit. That is still the definition.
2: It should be the definition, but we now know because this is positive. Now, if the next quarter is, we there won't be a declared recession for 2023,
0: right? Well, I have a different take on this. Okay, so Arun, if you could be so kind as to pull up the two comparison charts just there in the bottom.
2: I saw what you did here, by the
0: way. Yeah. So I posted this on social media earlier today with the intention of sharing it with you all here today. For those of you who are not. On YouTube right now, uh, you could always go there later on. Follow, subscribe, like, smash some, some follow buttons or whatever up, you want to do. Hook, hook up up with up, some of them, yeah. Link. Just hit all the buttons. Yeah. And um, you can see this for yourself. But if not, don't worry. I'm going to describe it to you.
2: Or you can follow Chris on Instagram.
0: Yeah, there, there's that. Uh, at Chris Nehebi. Yeah. Very easy. Where people love to tell me that my followers are all fake and that you don't exist. So just know that you're not a real person.
2: <laughs> Why do they attack you so
0: much, dude? It, it, it's just... Because the engagement, we post so much content that not every post gets, like, wild engagement. Yeah. So the haters are always like, oh, dude, you posted this, like, five hours ago, and only, like, 71 people liked it. (laughs) So, obviously, you're fake. Why
1: does this guy sound like a valley girl? (laughs) Yeah. I'm just really good at valley girl voice. (laughs) You love that.
0: That's your go-to voice. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of, like, uh... What do
2: you got against him, man? What? What do you got against valley girl, valley guy?
0: Nothing. I love the voice. It's you, one of the few voices I can do. Yeah, but
2: when you're referencing in a derogatory way, okay, I feel like okay, there's okay, something
0: here. It used to be that I could do like the Indian accent, and Can't nobody would care. Can't do that. Or I would do like an Asian accent. Can't do that. Nobody would care. Mm-hmm. And now, like all the stuff that I'm good at, I'm not allowed to do anymore. So you I can do like, British. Yeah, for really? whatever reason, people are okay with that. I don't know why. Right, so I don't really like doing the voice. Is it because doing
2: it. it because they're not? They've never. Really, they're not oppressed.
0: Is that why? I feel like. Most people that live in, like, London, as an example. <laughs> why? They, London. They live in but they don't live in Why the air quotes? <laughs> because I'll tell you why. Like, all the food in London sucks. I've never been, so I don't yeah. know. Would but. you like some bangers and mash?
2: So what? Sounds yeah. like a, a fire
0: dish. A bangers bangers in, <laughs> and mash. Sounds like an amazing dish. It's like sausage and mashed potatoes for breakfast, bro. Hey, bangers, though. Yeah, would you like some bangers and mash? Yeah, sign or me up. Right now.
2: If somebody came to me, if a waiter came to me, would you like some bangers and mash? Does it bang? A biscuit and tea
0: It's a fucking cookie, by the way. Yeah, that's... In glorified hot dog water. Yeah, no thanks. No, I don't like that. It yeah. tastes like shite. I don't like it. Anyway... <laughs> Um, yeah, so whatever. But everybody who's from in in London is usually, they're usually like immigrants from other places. Like when you get to the airport, there, there's a ton of like Pakistanis and Indians that live in the country. Oh yeah, So like the best food in the country is not like traditional English food in my mind. It's mm-hmm. like all the cultural impacts. Like there's great Asian food. There's great like Indian food. There's mm-hmm. great like tons of great restaurants, but none of them are English. None of them are British. Andrew Schultz has a great joke on this. I'm not gonna say it on this show, but everyone should go look this up. Take some time to go look this up. Wow, you're playing a very safe, narrow box tonight. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about it? You yeah. worry about getting canceled or something? Yeah, i will worry about you getting canceled. Well, I'm getting fucking slaughtered on social media most days of the week. But let's get back to the pictures. Okay, so the first image that I have is U.S. real gross domestic product. This actually came from the CNBC article. And it shows there's two quarters of successive negative, negative GDP growth going back from Q1 of 2022 to Q2 of 2022. And we said in July, when this data was reported, around the same time that the White House, kind of end of June, early July of 2022, the White House came out and said, hey, 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 you know, two successive quarters of negative GDP growth is not technically the definition of a recession. Mm -hmm. And they tried to thwart uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, being concerned. What was funny about that is the National Bureau of Economic Research typically doesn't react until 12 to 18 months after a dip in two successful quarters like this. They usually wait and look at all the data
3: mm-hmm.
2: and
0: they declare a recession retroactively. So now let's ask the, the follow-up question. Why would the White House want to do this? Because they didn't want the rhetoric of us being in a bad economy. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind the White House and frankly, the government far beyond the White House, the, the House, the Senate, they'd all approved these unprecedented stimulus packages mm-hmm. that went out to all everybody. And the Fed had acted late. And let's be honest, there's a a huge amount of political unrest. There's extremism. There's, you know, extreme Republicans and extreme Democrats. You could say the left or the right, whatever you want to say these days. It doesn't matter. And people are trying to really fight to stay in power. Right.
2: And I would just ask everyone to think of it this way, too. If the Federal Reserve is out here trying to perform quantitative tightening, meaning they're trying to pull money out of the system because that ultimately will help reduce inflation, right? That's their goal. If, they're, if they've been attempting to do that for the last year and a half, close to two years,
3: mm-hmm.
2: how in the world can we have such a positive GDP print, right? That should be alarming and concerning for everyone when the, the very nature of the thing that they're trying to control, they have not been able to
0: control. The latest internet troll that attacked me was suggesting that we have devalued the currency. And as a result of that, things will just gradually cost more and more over time. And I would say that's probably a very narrow view of a much bigger problem. Yes. I don't think we've devalued the currency as much as real wages have not kept up with real inflation. Mm -hmm. You can argue that's devaluation of the currency, and I think there's some truth to that. But when you start to go back through recessionary economies where things like the value of a dollar have gone up and down, the problem is, is when you look at something as a comparison, and we usually typically use it as a proxy, home values, home values have far outpaced wage growth. Yes. Right. So GDP, gross domestic product to gross domestic income is an interesting ratio, but they're actually moving separate ways now. Yeah. GDI, gross domestic income is actually going down while gross domestic product is
2: going up. And that's really what I believe. Was it the National Bureau of Economic Research or was it the White House that that's what they tried to cite? as when they averaged out the two,
0: then it was actually a positive figure. But I had never seen them really do this before. That was the White House's spin on one metric. Mm -hmm. Now I will say the last 10 recessions were declared after two successive quarters of negative GDP growth. And the whole GDI versus GDP debate, which the White House now tried to put in play, has never really been relevant or at the forefront of anybody's ideas. Mm -hmm. Whether the National Bureau of Economic Research really relies on that or not, we will soon see, I would imagine. But the reason why I brought this chart up is it shows you Q1, Q2, negative GDP growth. And then after that, you've seen GDP kind of flat and then trailing down up until this quarter's print, which was at 4.9%. Clearly almost double what the previous prints had been. But when you look at it over the, the scope of the history of the United States going back several years, in this case, to... About let's call it two thousand five, two thousand four.
2: Actually, I have a, I have a chart. If Odin wants to pull it up, so you can re- actually reference it, it's down a little bit further. on. <clears throat> right there, the first one mm. goes back ten years.
0: Yeah, uh, effectively the same same chart. But what's interesting about this is when you look at the U.S. gross domestic product, mm-hmm. you'll see that after two su- successive quarters of negative GDP growth, it is not uncommon to see these blips up like this even in a recessionary economy. Right. So for people to go, okay, hey, this is indicative of the fact that we're not in a recession currently right now, I would say no. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who follow the show for any prolonged period of time, you know that Said and I have long thought that in January, as of January 1st, 2022, till, till now, we've felt that we've been in a recessionary economy. Yes. And that a prolonged recessionary economy, greater than a normal moving economy, should be anticipated, not only in length of time that the recession lasts, but I think in the scale that it'll take to scale up. So for example, when you remove all the elasticity out of the economy, which is what we did with all this artificial interest rate, depreciation, uh, and all of the stimulus, you've taken all of the elasticity out of the economy. It doesn't move as, as quickly as it once did by doing things like raising the Fed funds rate. Mm-hmm. So it's gonna take time to build momentum back in the economy, which is why I think the treasuries took so long to respond and start to rise. And they've been hovering around 4.9% for the last couple of weeks. Right. We,
2: we as consumers and people who are, you know, a big part of the economy, right, we make up as consumers 70% of what GDP is. You got to know, you gotta know on, on your day-to-day spending, whether you feel like you're in a recession or not, right? We've all felt the impacts. We talk about savings. In this report, the savings rate also came down from Q2 last year, the savings rate, the rate at which people save. Came down from 5.2% to now 3.8%. On a previous show, we recently cited that savings have been coming down steadily for 23 months. I'm sure now it's, it's 24 months. Two years, right? Yeah, no doubt it's 24 the, months. The San, the San Francisco Fed is the one that came out and reported that. So that in and of itself right there should let you know, for 24 months, savings has, the saving rate has been coming down.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, You should be feeling the impacts. Wait, saving rates are coming down. Credit debt is reaching all-time highs. We have here 7% of people with credit card balances are now 30 days d- delinquent. 7%. That's yep. that is the highest rate since 2012. 7% of auto loans are now 30 days delinquent. Mm-hmm.
1: So I have a question for you, site. Yeah. With the GDP growth being as high as it is, like who is this benefiting on um, like the GDP being um growing? Who's it, who's it benefiting? Is it helping the Fed, the consumers? The economy who is it exactly so this is a
2: this is why Chris and I cited off in the first of all it's a really good question um, this is why Chris and I cited at the top of the show that this is very misleading okay because a print like this would be what it's what it's really s- supposed to signal is that everyone's in good shape you should be swimming in a pool of money with a print like this instead everyone is feeling themselves being squeezed on a month-to-month basis people are living paycheck to paycheck so what, what this really should be signaling is the Fed should be like, whoa, sound the alarms is an issue. But instead, if you looked at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, I didn't look at Bloomberg's world interest rate probability. The, um, the index that basically predicts whether there's going to be another rate hike. No
0: movement. There's been no movement the last no, weeks. Yeah. no And no movement after this, specifically. Usually those things react after something like this. The, the probability of an interest rate rec- increase was so low. Mm -hmm. It's just remained low. Well, I
2: think and I believe the Fed is actually they're looking at the data, but they also realize that this is a bogus print, first of all, and that they know, okay, this came on. But also keep in mind, this this is backward looking data. Okay, this is not accounting for the student loan repayments that just came online. Correct. Right. That's another huge part of this. So kudos to the Fed for being able to, you know,
0: see like you know, split hairs and read between the lines? I will say the Fed interest rate increase probability for December has been creeping up. Has it really? Oh, the yeah. last time I checked, it was a 70% chance that it, they weren't going to do anything. I think it's closer to 50-50 now. Okay,
2: 50-50 again? Okay, yeah. wow. So we actually have a Fed meeting coming up less than a week from now.
0: November 1st.
2: Yeah, it uh, starts October 31st and ends on November 1st, two-day meeting. Um, so to answer your question, this, this report right here doesn't benefit anybody. You're supposed to be looking at this and it's supposed to be signaling that, you know, how healthy the economy is, right? Instead, this is this is not an accurate depiction
0: of what's going on. So, if I may, I know the question was addressed to you. Yeah. Please do. Um I'd like to propose a hypothetical to everyone. GDP and a lot of the numbers that we've looked at We've typically looked at them as like the North Star of this information that we've aggregated together that means something very valuable. But I would say now more than ever, these numbers can and are manipulated. Keep in mind the data is lagging. It comes in. There's a lot of revisions up and down. These things happen. But there are other ulterior motives for people to want prints to be high, right? And there are other reasons why prints would be high, even if the ulterior motives weren't present. So for example, spending on things like government spending is arguably propping up GDP and the organic, or I would call true GDP, if you removed government spending and some of the outer influences here, Mm -hmm. I think would be a lot lower, Mm -hmm. maybe two percentage points lower. So I look at this stuff and I ask myself, well, is there an inherent value in this? And I would say yes, in that you can see in aggregate what is being spent right? But you need to take it with a grain of salt and understand, number one, it doesn't include everything. And number two, your real-time perspective, being out in the community, experiencing inflation, seeing how people are on airplanes when you travel, seeing how people are in hotels when you have to stay in one, is probably a better indicator than this number is.
2: I I remember several weeks ago, you cited that, I think a listener reached out to you, let you know, like, the real-time data that I'm seeing is that when I come home Friday nights to and I parked my car on the street. There's yeah. no more parking spots because everyone's staying inside. They're not going out. Yeah. Right. Whereas before he would come home, I don't remember the city that they lived in, but they they would be able to find parking spots right, you know, mm-hmm. on the street, right beneath their apartment because
0: everybody was out. Yeah. Yeah. True. And, and I'll tell you, so to me, that mean the tactile real life experience, the stuff that you try to be observational about. Another thing that I look at all the time, so I do a lot of little things like this just because it's become like a habit and I'm a banker and maybe it's just my weird mind. I love looking at the company names on buildings as I drive down the freeway. Mm -hmm. And it never ceases to amaze me how many companies, both small cap, mid cap, large companies, mom and pops, these names of companies you see as you drive by and you think to yourselves like there's employees there, there's there's business expenses, operating expenses, there's banking relationships, there's lending. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are going on in these little economic worlds that are these companies. Right. But it's amazing to me to see how many of those names changes change over the years. Oh, okay. And they do change. And I think something like that is a much more tactile, real-world experience of what the economy looks like. You're seeing a lot of the lenders, a lot of the the the, the mortgage lenders that were used to be on these signs, they're going away. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing a lot of those signs change. I, I, can, I can imagine that when you see the First Republic signs come down and Chase go up, that's a big change, yeah. right? And, and an entity that was big and independent has now got absorbed by a bigger one, mm-hmm. which kind of leads into the M&A conversation later on in the episode. But I, I look at GDP and these numbers as just one factor, but there are several other factors that are more important in kind of the, the grand scheme of things. And what I'll tell you is I still adamantly believe that we've been in a recession and I think that a lot of what we've experienced since then have been indications of recession. We'll see what the National Bureau of Economic Research says. But I, that's why I find the commentary and the rhetoric in the media about, ooh, are we going to have a recession? Oh, Chase no longer feels like we're, you know, we're in a recession. Or, or Schwab says this, and all these economists say that. And, and I look at it, and I think to myself, okay, well, why are we still debating whether or not we're going to have a recession? Yeah. We know the National Bureau of Economic Research declares it afterward. Right. We know that typically the... the metric is two successive quarters of negative gdp growth which we had mm-hmm. why are we ignoring that right what what do people think is going to happen where we go oh shit we're in a recession there's going to be two more quarters of negative gdp growth guess what the white house will probably put out another letter saying no 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 it's really the average of gdi gross domestic income and gross domestic product and those numbers are positive mm-hmm. so this is not the case did you yeah because wages now are finally
2: reaching a point where they're outpacing inflation Right. And
0: if politically we thought that the Democrats, and I'm, I'm just using an example, so nobody get all you know, Republican on me, but if the Democrats released the letter from the White House uh, in June, July of 2022, trying to prevent two successful quarters of negative GDP growth of being a recessionary economy, what do you think they're going to do if we have two successful quarters of negative GDP growth in an election year? I'm pretty sure you're going to get another letter from them saying, like, this right. is not a recession. Right. So I... I look at all this and I think to myself, okay, so there, there's not like, who's going to be the, the arbiter of, of a recession other than the National Bureau of Economic Research, which has been silent.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We're never going to get the answer to these questions, these articles, is clickbait bullshit. Right. And it's just, mis- it's just using people's fear against them to get them to read an article.
2: Exactly. And the other thing to keep in mind here, we, we just got done citing the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Bloomberg World Interest Rate Probability that has not budged for the upcoming meeting. Okay. Meaning yep. they're not going to raise rates, uh, in the next week or so by the time this episode comes out, maybe right. Um, if the economy was booming, like a 4.9% GDP growth rate, uh, represents the fed would raise interest rates because all that would mean is inflation is there's a resurgence in inflation and it's going to spike again, mm. but they're not going to That's, That should be telling enough that even the Fed's looking at this and saying, I call BS. Well, because
0: the treasuries indicate something else. The treasuries indicate a completely different market. And I think if you look at the 10-year treasury, which we've talked about obviously a lot in the show, I think the Fed is freaked out. Because you can't have the Fed funds target rate move up as quickly as it did and then have the 10-year treasuries rise quickly too Mm -hmm. without putting monumental strain on the system that's now out of their control. Even if they were to cut rates, it isn't going to necessarily drive the 10-year down immediately. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: You know, a lot of that is based off of kind of the behavioral economics piece in in the market and their perception. So it's an interesting time, to your point, and don't take our word for it. From Business Insider, Mohamed el Rain, one of our favorite. Uh, Strong GDP doesn't mean U.S. will dodge recession, Mohammed el Rain says. Again, debating a recession, but let's let's read on from the article. What we should not do is take this as a signal of the all clear for 2024, L. Rain said on CNBC's squawk box on Thursday. As you know, I've always pushed back on the notion that we would have a recession in 2023. I'm a little worried about 2024. It it, it again, same statement. Like when why do these people all think that they're going to be the arbiter of a recessionary economy? Right. It,
2: it does it does it matter if it starts at the end of starts at the end of 2023 or 2024 we're headed in look at the end of the day the longer this takes to play out just means that we were in a, that much worse of a shape and it, it could strike an even harder landing i think the fed
0: knew that though i think the fed knew that and that's what they're saying rates are going to be held higher for longer mm-hmm. i think that's exactly why they're saying it but they don't want to scare the general public by saying look not only are we in a recession but we know that we've got a long way to go to correct it yeah. because we spent 14 years in this weird, nebulous, unbelievably liquid period of time where people right. were pumping money into the economy. But
2: they so. said it without saying it, right? We've routinely said on the show, that's why people like, should be tuning into the, the higher standard to get the full breakdown.
0: Mm, no we, bias. Yeah.
2: We break down the summary of economic projections that they lay out. Yep. So he might, he, he might dance around some of the questions at the post-game press conference, he being Jerome Powell. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Neil Kashkari is not going to step up and do it for him. No,
0: Alopecia ain't going to do that.
2: No, he ain't going to do that. Right. So but what they do is in the summary of economic projections clearly states out this is going to take until 2025. Forget about 2024. We're aiming to 2025.
0: And that is the rhetoric now as we're hearing people say, well, what if they don't cut rates in 2024 at all? Uh, And that that seems to be a possibility. So boosting concerns are the rising U.S. deficit and a rising number of bankruptcies, as well as an economy that is seeing inflation hugging 4%. But strong retail sales numbers and a blowout September jobs report have led many investors to flip to the non-recession camp. That jobs report that Chris just referenced, that's the one where
2: they added 336,000 jobs.
0: Yeah, well ahead of expectations. Mm -hmm. While the GDP numbers underscore U.S exceptionalism. el Rain said, high interest rates are impacting all corners of the economy. And that's something to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Quoting again from Hamid el Rain, we have first the rundown in savings. That's a big issue, he said. Secondly, what's been happening in the interest rate market is really problematic. It's problematic for businesses. It's problematic for governments, for the Fed. It's problematic for households. And that is significant headwind to economic activity. And I would like to say that is also all the main topics that we've been talking about on the show. It's true. We did a whole episode on bonds. We've been hitting bonds hard for the last couple of weeks. And he hit it right on the head. I mean, it, it's a huge problem for the federal government. Episode 184, what oh. this crazy bond market means for you. So good, Odin. Arun Campbell coming out here, popping. On top of it. Why is it always going to be on top? What do you mean? He's
2: on, he's on top of it. That's, why can't he
0: be That's just the saying, man.
2: Don't try to make me a villain for the saying. That's just the
0: saying. I didn't say anything wrong. Do you ever think there's a lot of sexual connotation to the expression? No, you take it there, though. And, I'll, and I'm all for it. That's fine. I'm asking you a hypothetical question. I don't know why you're getting
2: sensitive. I'm not. Who's sensitive?
0: You seem very defensive about this.
2: I'm not defensive. I just know, I just know your
0: games, the shenanigans. There's no games. Okay. Please. Um... You know, now that you've distracted me from <laughs>
2: where you were going, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, why is it? Why? Why is it that you think, or maybe help people understand and explain why certain industries are more interest rate sensitive and why it takes time? Why are there even why are there lag effects and how do the lag effects work? Why does it take so long to work its way through the system?
0: Wow, uh, that's a complex question. So every company that's smart and prudent with their money has lines of credit, for example, right? leverage is kind of the core of how the system works and people might be saying okay well why if you're flush with cash would you have lines of credit because you can write off things like interest in some circumstances you can uh better cash use your cash position to do things like make more money Mm -hmm. um if you're got a line of credit for a hundred million dollars in your large company and it's costing you three or four percent but you can make twelve percent then you do that. Or if you're buying a company and you need leverage and you don't want to use your cash, you have cash for operating liquidity, then you can do that too. There's a myriad of reasons from an accounting perspective and my accountant friends out there, shout out to all you guys, uh, they could probably tell you better than I could. But there's lots of reasons why companies have lines of credit. Those lines of credit payments go up. Keep in mind that it goes up and it increases your payments for one month, then two months, then three months, and it keeps going.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And as rates increase, your payments get heavier and heavier and heavier. And it's got a it's got a kind of a, a growing impact on companies as one of many examples. Right. And to your
2: point, so if you have a line of credit to better use the cash that you have to deploy mm-hmm. in something else as an investment or to help grow your company, well, if, if you're not you know careful and safe with how much you deploy and keep enough of a reserve, well, now you're, you're relying on this line of credit that may not get renewed during a credit tightening cycle. Mm-hmm. And now all your cash is out and you no longer have access to that line of credit. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit later why mergers and acquisitions might be booming in 2024.
0: There's other, there's, there's other aspects too. Um, this also affects the consumer, right? Your credit card interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. Your cost of getting, it's never been a worse time to buy cars right now. Bob, the, the most ones have ever been in aggregate when you think about financing and car values. Mm-hmm. Well, if all those things are true and then you add things like student loan debt back in and people are paying more debt because their interest rates have gone up, they're going to have less excess cash flow to use to buy things from companies. Right. Now, companies who already have their own debt problems in increasing debt also have less people purchasing their product or using their services. And as a result, they're now lowering their revenue, even making things more challenging. So now you have lower revenue and you've got higher debt payments. And it's a very parasitic cyclical cycle that kind of works its way to the economy.
2: Perfect example of what we're seeing right now. So, you know, there's certain industries that are more interest rate sensitive. Think of like all the, in, all, all the companies that are affected by high interest rates, like in the mortgage space, in the housing space. Okay. Yep. So they're very interest rate sensitive. Lenders, very interest rate sensitive. Okay. But look, you still have consumers out there propping up consumption and GDP. To 4.9% because it makes up 70% of GDP when, look, you got lenders over here saying that they're hurting. Yeah. Profitability is down. Yep. But it hasn't worked its way all the way to the consumer yet. And, I mean, I asked you the question even though I knew the answer, but I thought it would be good for the listeners. I'm answering my own question now.
0: I feel, I feel like that's a little arrogant. I just
2: felt like you didn't hit the, some of the topics I wanted to touch on. I wanted, I didn't say you didn't
0: you, you weren't right. Arun, you want to you wanna tell him?
1: He's being arrogant.
0: Yeah. Villain. Yeah. What?
1: Bro, you set him up to fail.
0: You did. Yeah. How, what? I said, I just
2: felt like you didn't answer. You didn't say some of the things that I wanted to also know. I shouldn't say it.
0: <laughs> wow. You guys are really paying me out to be the villain. We didn't paint you anything. We, he, that's just a general statement. Okay. I'm sorry. I accept your apology. Something tells me it's not sincere because you're shaking your head no right now. I was, I was really to <laughs> trying to be helpful for the listener that's cool i mean you could you could have like you know segwayed into like so you'd have to be like well you didn't answer that shit the way i wanted you to so let no, me explain. i said there was also another point but okay uh, <laughs> i'm sorry christopher would you like some table salt with your saltiness
1: no no, you're salty chris just sit back sorry take it away go ahead
2: Oh wait go ahead <laughs> no you still have more to go on uh muhammad el-rain
0: no i'm good yeah yeah good yeah
2: okay so this from Jamie Dimon now from CNBC. Jamie Dimon rips central banks for being 100% dead wrong on economic forecasts. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon on Tuesday warned about the dangers of locking in an outlook about the economy. He says, prepare for possibilities and probabilities, not calling one course of action since I've never seen anyone call it. The head of the largest U.S. bank by assets said while he was in Saudi Arabia. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Did you have any thoughts you wanted me to hit before I start speaking? No. <laughs> it was the salty one. i just. I just want to make sure that I'm not Jeez, man. falling short of your expectation. No, man. You sure. <laughs> yep, sure. I, you, you okay? Is there any like? No. Nope. Did you have, like a bullet pointed list of topics that I should cover in response to that question? No, man.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, that's good for Jamie.
1: Damn, Jimmy, cut short.
0: (laughs) So, look, economists are often wrong. Okay, there's a lot of criticism. I think uh, on the interweb, social media about, oh, you know, uh, economists—they're—they're—they're wrong more than they're right. Well, you know, yeah, they—they've been wrong a lot, and there's a lot of people all over the spectrum uh, from an educated standpoint that—that guess. That's what economists do, is they try to use data to provide their best possible guess of what is likely to happen. I don't look at that as a bad thing. I look at it as, as, look, you got a lot of educated people who have subject matter expertise, who take personal pride in studying a topic or a space, a sector, and formulating an informed opinion. And in some cases, like the central banks, they have been, in fact, 100% dead wrong with some of their economic forecasts. So to his point, you do have to take it with a grain of salt. Now I would say Chase has been wrong. Bank of America has been wrong. A lot of people are wrong, but unprecedented stimulus has unprecedented endings. And the, the, the number one frustration that I have with a lot of people is I go, Hey man, I'm doing the Valley girl again, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Shit. Um, that's all I got. <laughs> okay. they will be like, Hey man, um, the 1970s were like this. The 1980s were like this. And, and all this had happened. And so, so this is going to happen now because that happened then. And no, they're all snowflakes. They're all unique. They all had different beginnings. They had different Fed policy in place, wildly different Fed policy than today. And they had different political climates. They had different geopolitical climates. There's a lot that, 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 that was different in every one of these scenarios. And they're never going to react quite the same. All you can do is take these past set of circumstances and try to button up what you can for the next economy that comes along. Using the banking sector as, as a proxy for a bigger problem. Well, leading into the Great Recession, it was mortgage defaults and securitized, hybridized, synthetic mortgage-backed securities in the secondary market that all defaulted. Well, now more than ever, credit is a strong position for most banks across the country. That is not what's leading the way. There was a, a full deposit run, a run on, on, on banks that had nothing to do with them having, quote, bad assets. It had to do with them having assets that were underwater because there was interest rate increases, which caused their assets, which they bought for long-term yields, to be worth less, Mm -hmm. right? Arguably, all the loans that were made in the last 14 years are now underwater relative to market. So all banks have this problem. No bank, even the globally systematic important banks, Chase, Wells, B of A, Citi, they all have these same problems. So yet we still had runs on deposit. It shows you the danger of Social media and in, in these these hard and fast rhetorics, why anybody thought okay, just because this person got on social media and said, "Hey, get all your money out of there right away, they're going to fail." Why do we take people's? You know, Bill Ack- Ackman has been on the news lately talking about bonds. He's never talked about bonds in his life, right? And now people are taking him as like the bond expert. But to that same point, it's also dangerous the other
2: way. It's dangerous for talking heads to be out here preaching optimism. Preaching that the economy is still resilient, so he's when he says also, there's dangers in locking in an outlook. It, is there's dangers in saying take your money out of that bank, but there's also dangers for consumers out there that are listening to a talking head saying that the consumer's resilient, economy's booming. Look, Janet Yellen said 4.9 percent is great, mm-hmm. so there's also dangers also on
0: Janet Yellen. So
2: grain of salt, yeah. But when you got a title like you know
0: that she has, there's some people that are going to listen to that. So are you then? subtly advocating for the fact that Jerome Powell, who fancies himself the most communicative Fed secretary we've had, has been communicating in a way that sounds kind of cryptic as being for a reason?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He, he's, he hasn't taken a side because he knows. We've talked about it on the show plenty of times. He can't lean too far any one way because if he, if he like you said earlier, if he recognizes that we're in a recession, that could create all type of public outcry. Right? There could be hysteria out there. Also, the same token, if he comes out and preaches optimism, saying, Look, we might, look, we could very well stop right here and not have another interest rate hike. And he might very well know that. But if he comes out and says that, then we've mentioned how that would signal we're now in phase two of this three phase approach. And people might go out there and still continue to spend thinking cuts are just right around the corner, which could ultimately have a resurgence in inflation. So he can't, he knows the weight of his words. And he
0: can't take a strong position. But the summary of economic projections say enough. Okay, so two points to, to wrap this whole kind of debate up. Number one, economists have to be out there saying stuff and giving their opinion because you need to be able to parse through different opinions to formulate your own. You need to be objective and listen to people who think this is going to happen and that's going to happen. and You got to figure out what your thought on this happening is mm-hmm. going to be. And none of them are the holy grail of answers. Right. But the point is, is you've got people who have educated, informed stance, usually making comments, and they usually have data to back it up. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the role of an economist. Point number two, if the summary of economic projections is in fact like that, and if the Fed, Jerome Powell, FOMC, feel that they have to be somewhat measured in their responses and they can't communicate too much because they don't want to come off as being 100% dead wrong on things like this, and they don't want to provide a projection one way or the other, why the fuck are they having press conferences at all? Yeah. Why are we still doing that? Mm-hmm. Why why do you want to be the 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 most communicative Fed Secretary? Let the summary of economic projections speak for themselves. There's plenty. The The book comes out. There's plenty of sources to get insight into the FOMC's thoughts. How much of it outside is, of a press conference where a guy is very cryptic. Right. How much of it is, you know,
2: him and the FOMC's fault? And how much of it is just the generation that we live in now where we're in a 24 hour news cycle and there are people have expectations, people want answers. They don't want you hiding behind some meeting in the fed minutes and they want someone to come out and speak to them. I mean, if people are demanding that, like we want we want answers, we
0: want to hear what just happened in your meeting. Okay, well that's fine, but here's the problem with that. Is I don't think that he's given the real a great example of this and I'm going to continue to go back to this time and time again. They have not yet once explained why they felt the bell curve methodology this 25 50 75 75 75 50 back down to 25 why that methodology, for the first time ever in mm-hmm. history, was necessary.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, he ha- they have not said that.
0: That would be that would be in a, a colossal step forward in explaining to America what to expect and what they think may have been the risk had they not have done it. Right.
2: Now, in hindsight, we can look back at Volcker and understand why he did what he did. Right? Fighting
0: hyperinflation?
2: Yeah, fighting hyperinflation. But during that time... I'm not so sure he was out there saying, I'm going to continue to raise rates for however long that he did. So, maybe we'll get an explanation after the fact?
0: Maybe, but I would say in his case, and in many cases before him and after him, the consistency in their methodology was enough to where nobody was caught off guard. And because there was consistency in it, so... There is 25 base points, 25 base points, 25 base points, or 50 base points, 50 base points, 50 basis points until they felt like they were done. Mm-hmm. I think most of America could have lived with that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we took such an extremely different tact this time, right? it begs the question of, okay, what are we missing that was so different this time? What was your fear? Was it hyperinflation? Because Volcker... Handled that without doing it your way. Why was this so necessary now? The data doesn't suggest hyperinflation. It suggests it could have been a possibility, sure, but at nine point one percent, we weren't in hyperinflation territory, in my mind. No, you know, I, I get that they were worried about the impacts of all the spending and the surplus, and they were trying to react fast, and they had two years or behind. I guess providing some level of culpability, if there is some from them, would go a long way for the consumer. You can blame economists, but the economists are shooting in the dark here too, because they still don't understand what the Fed was afraid of, right It's all conjecture because the Fed hasn't said it
2: mm-hmm. yeah, but we know that at the rate of which things were going, action needed needed to be done yeah 100%. so it's it, it remains to be seen if what they did was right or wrong because we haven't seen the the full effects of all the lag effects just yet, but Fed uh, President Raphael Bostic from Atlanta, Bostic? Bostic? Bostic. Bostic uh, doesn't foresee rate cuts coming until late 2024. This from CNBC. Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic on Friday said he doesn't envision interest rate cuts happening until well into 2024. Quote, We're going to have to be cautious. We're going to have to be patient, but we're going to have to be resolute, he told CNBC. So remember, When this all started, all the talking heads were out there saying, you can probably expect two rate cuts by the end of 2023. That didn't happen.
3: Yeah, You can expect
2: rate cuts by March of 2024. That's no longer happening. You can expect rate cuts by June. As of last week, I believe we sat on the show, the rate cuts were then expected to start happening in July. He's saying, now you can continue to push that back even further. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't our call June, July, and 24? Uh, We said, you know, end of Q2, beginning of Q3. That's what we initially thought.
0: So okay, yeah. Yeah. I I still think that that's a possibility given what could happen. Yeah, I I think that that's that's an interesting kind of time frame because you're going to have, uh, you'll have Q4, Q Q1, and then Q2, and then by July, you'll have three successive quarters of pretty significant stress on the economy. Right. You'll be deeper into an earnings recession in my mind, again, this is debatable. You'll have, wow, flatlining profits in the banking sector. Holiday spending will be behind you. You're going to go into what would otherwise be a big couple of months for normal real estate markets in the June, July, people move during the summer because, you know, the kids going to school. I think you're going to see some interesting data then. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see where the housing market data goes at that particular juncture in time, but I think that that's that number to me, it still seems plausible that you get a potential cut then. But if you don't see any improvement, yeah, I, I see both six point, Bo six point.
2: At the end of the day for for the listeners that are listening that, you know, say you don't work in the lending space and maybe you know, your industry or your sector isn't as interest rate sensitive as it is to us, but you're feeling a pinch because your credit card rate is at an all-time high, right? Um, you know, you're carrying more debt and you got student loan, student loan debt, right? The company that you work for has a revolving line of credit that they might not be able to renew and you don't know, you're not sure where, what their position is that they manage their, you know, capital properly. At the end of the day, what they're going to need to see is unemployment go up. So it reduces spending, right? And it, and it tackles the wage growth and they're going to need to see housing come down mm. because it plays such a big role. So, for our realtor friends that are out there, our mortgage broker friends out there, people that are constantly attacking you on comments on Instagram or in the DMs, whatever. (laughs) If if you don't feel for your friends and family, like they need this to come
0: down. You know what? I'll say this too. The majority of realtors that I have spoken to in the last couple months, I think they're equally as concerned and they're starting to really diverge from the National Association's a realtor's rhetoric uh, about, you know, the uh, the solution to the affordability crisis is rates have to go down. I think the overwhelming majority of them that I, I have engaged with on social media, particularly the last couple of days where I've been really pointed at some comments, just to, just to get a pulse. So for those of you who listen to the show, I'll, I'll give you a little insight into my mind. It is not uncommon for me to go to somebody's social media page who has a differing opinion. And to fire off what I think is a collegial challenge to their usually parroting of the National Association of Realtors' statements. Lawrence Yoon, for example. Uh, I did that recently on a gentleman who did a collaborative post uh, with The Real Deal. And look, he's all about this over-the-top, very you know, arrogant, confident, driven personality. Look, I, I don't judge him. That's how he gets traffic, right? And he's clearly doing something right because he's got a ton of followers and more than me. But the majority of people who responded to the post that were were realtors or real estate professionals, I think they agreed with my statement. And I think they disagreed. And and some of the comments were really negative. I try to do this in a collegial way where I'm going to get your feel. There was one realtor in particular, a realtor in particular from the Midwest. um, She was all over me. Home values aren't going to go down unless there's more supply in the market. And I said, I can prove you wrong right now. She said, what is that supposed to mean? I said, well, you look like you're in the Denver area. Home values have dropped in Denver 4%. Mm -hmm. And uh, there hasn't been a notable spike in supply. So if your statement is that the only way for values to go down, if more supply hits the market, how did values just go down? Mm -hmm. They went down because affordability got worse because interest rates went up. Right. Okay. So they're in this whole theory of supply and demand is based on more supply coming to the market to keep demand. No affordability is a massive component of demand. So you can't ignore it. She says to me, well, no, 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 you're wrong. That's an hour and a half away from me. That's not my market. My mark is this Windsor, Colorado. Well, I looked that up. It was down 3.7%.
2: It also still does not explain Denver.
0: No, it doesn't. Yeah. But, as, you know, her market was also down 3.7%. And she just spent time telling me in her response that it was up 3%. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay,
0: you are disconnected to your market. If you are telling me your market's up 3%, yeah. but Redfin is telling me this month, not, you know, 10 years ago, but September, the last month, the full month of reporting, they said you were down 3.7%. Right. There's a material disconnect in where you're getting your data from. Right. And then another person challenged me and I said, okay, well, again, same example, Austin, San Jose, explain to me how they've gone down if more supply has to hit the market. If you believe the Dave Ramsey approach. Mm -hmm. The supply and demand is a core basis of values. And if there's not enough supply, demand will always keep values up. That is fundamentally incorrect. And we've been saying it over and over and over again. And now that the markets are rolling in mm-hmm. with values having gone down, a lot of realtors are coming to like, wait a minute. Okay, something's wrong. This, this rhetoric's wrong. So I'll give them credit. that They're right. But there are always those who feel like they can look at the macro picture. Right. Home values always go up over the course of 10, 20 years. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's probably true.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That's probably a fair statement, but here's what I'll say to you. Just because we say now is not the time to buy doesn't mean we say, hey, don't ever buy. Right. We're saying be thoughtful, be pragmatic. If you want to wait a little bit longer, you're probably going to be in better circumstances, mm-hmm. better set of circumstances. If you need the home right now, buy now. If you find a property that cash flows in cash flows with some potential downside rent exposure, yeah, buy now, fine. But for the majority of Americans, this is not a question of, hey, if you find a deal, it's they can't fucking afford to buy a home, period. When was the last time you
2: started hearing these conversations about, is it better to buy or rent? This is an actual conversation that you need to consider and sit down and look over your finances. Because this is something that, as we've proven on the show, there's certain regions, certain markets, right, where it's cheaper to rent than it is to buy. I forget the city that we cited. You could add $5,000 a month to your cash flow had you rented versus buying a home, right?
0: Wasn't that Miami, baby? Yeah, no. may- maybe it was Miami. Trace, welcome to yeah. Miami. Right, but... Can I do that accent? That one? No, you can't that do that Puerto one. Puerto Rican?
2: No, no, I don't think so. God damn it. There's nothing fun I can do anymore. <laughs> nothing. But, um, maybe lose my train of thought.
0: You were telling me that Arun is your best friend.
2: Arun has been my best friend for a very long time, yeah.
1: 20 years, baby.
0: Baby.
2: You know, the first, those first 10 years, you know, you were best friends with other people. So you you didn't look at me as a friend back then. Ouch. (laughs) You did it. What do you want me to say? But now we're best friends. We're all best friends.
3: Circle of trust. Well, Uh, circle.
0: I can't make it. it. (laughs) Is it
3: though? Yeah. Why? It's not? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, you know, not so much. Oh, I'm sorry. I
2: don't feel the love. I'll give you some love, man. You, I'm
0: feeling a little violated. I feel like you need a hug. I do need a hug. Are you going to so, give him a hug now? Last no.
1: episode, you didn't? Okay.
0: No. No, I gave you the kiss and the hug. By the way, I owe you one today too as well. Yes, sir. Keep the momentum going.
1: You came in with a mood today.
0: Man, I've been up since 6 o'clock in the morning. I uh, like, no, I've been up since 5.30 in the morning. I was in the office by like 6, 6.30-ish. I got dressed super quick. And um, the vibe was off all day, man. It was a lot non meetings today yeah was, and then i did the earnings call in the morning so yeah yeah it's got to be frustrating uh we were doing
2: halloween decorations because we got the kids coming for the halloween parade so that tomorrow, was tomorrow yeah i'm excited for that that was yeah that was yeah. a lot of
0: fun you bring in carter right yeah he'll be there too i think he's i think my, my wife God, my wife's gonna make him do homework in my office
2: make him do homework He's a four
0: and a half year old on That's on a friday he does homework every day. He's in Kuman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, he's good at
2: how many pages? You know, I used it's to work at, a lot. I used to work at Kuman. I graduated really? from the program.
3: Math
0: and reading. Your sister did too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well. He's in Kuman and he's got uh two books. Uh, he's not doing the math portion anymore because he's pretty good at math. He's he doesn't yeah. really need the help, but uh
2: it also makes kids like smartasses. I remember I, I knew I was like way ahead of math growing up in grade school and I'd be constantly the teacher would be teaching, and I'd be like, You don't gotta do that step. And she'd be like, please, can I teach the class? Have you ever considered that maybe
0: you were the smartass? I, I was, yeah. I, am smart. I was the smartass. In your defense, though, my son has been a real smartass lately. Come on, man. It's been, it's been, I looked at my wife the other day, I'm like, when the fuck did he give me like this teenager smartass attitude? I mean, when does this start happening?
1: Damn, I wonder where he got it from.
0: Don't do that. He, he, I'm like, son, Sometimes, time don't
1: call back? Joanna like that, man.
0: What? That's
2: rude, Said. I would never say that, but Joanna's the angel in the, in the family, bro. What are you talking about?
0: Comparatively, yeah. He, he uh he, he my son send time to the bath he goes no <laughs> i go I'm, when mommy says go <laughs> i'm like what do you mean no he goes i want to take a shower and i go okay we'll take a shower he goes you have to take it with me i'm like no he's like then i'm not taking one man i'm like what do you mean you're not taking one he's like i don't want to
2: you know what he said right he's uh. like my name's on your arm you listen to me <laughs>
0: <laughs> i hadn't thought about that that's true
2: <laughs> i own you <laughs> You know, he's going to say that to you one day. Yeah, maybe. That was funny. So I remember what I was going to say back to that whole real estate market and the realtors. So these positive figures that you're hearing um, that are getting reported on these headlines, this is why the headlines are clickbaity, right? Those are national averages, okay? So when it comes to real estate markets, these things are regional. It's different. What happens in San Jose is not going to be the same thing that happens in Oklahoma or somewhere in the Midwest. Okay, and It doesn't all have to happen at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't. And remember, so if, if it is, keep in mind, it's really unaffordable over here out on the West Coast. Okay. What do people have to do to buy a home? They're going to have to move. So maybe they're going to a market and overpaying over there somewhere where they could buy a home. Who knows the
0: reason? Can right? I paint a picture? Yeah. We saw a lot of migration out of major metropolitan areas. And you read the article not too long ago on the show about downtowns dying. Yes. So there's been a mass outflow, I would say, from most major metropolitan areas, but that also has an added economic benefit to most families or consumers mm-hmm. because they can buy homes at cheaper values than they otherwise would in these metropolitan areas, which are much more dense. Mm-hmm. So because of that, uh, the work from home concept and working remotely became a very big plus to helping them do that. That's what I was going to say. That's
2: the one aspect of working remotely that I feel like I hope... People out there can still, some people can still do because it allows them the opportunity to buy a home somewhere further and, you know, start me- these memories with their family inside a home.
0: But have you ever considered that that as an underlying stimulus has been the impetus for some significant economic change that we have not yet accounted for? Absolutely. Yeah. So you're seeing the valuations across the country change. Like the realtor, realtor, I keep saying a realtor, the realtor from Windsor who attacked me, who felt that her market was up 3%. Mm-hmm. Maybe she feels that way because she's got more people going into her market than leaving her market than she'd had historically. Because yes. over the course of the last 20 years, more people left to go look for jobs in bigger cities or mm-hmm. commuted. Right. And that was harder to do, particularly for families, right? So maybe these smaller towns are going to see growth while larger towns see the opposite. A larger right.
2: towns see the opposite also asking rent in some of these larger towns will probably come down because they have more multifamily units coming online, but maybe asking rent for an apartment unit in in a, you know, a city like that, that's
0: maybe a smaller market that doesn't have a lot of multifamily units coming online. Maybe that goes up. So maybe the data starts being kind of weird and going up and down, like we've seen GDP go up and down as people with lower mortgage payments, lower rent payments can spend more on consumer discretionary spending. But maybe the end result is we hit equilibrium. Mm Mm-hmm. Employers figure out what they want in remote versus non-remote. They figure out if there's a hybrid schedule. And then people start to settle in these areas. And maybe major metropolitan areas have a shift. Maybe they, maybe they don't. I don't know. But at the end of the day, we'll hit an equilibrium standpoint. And then what happens? Right. Yeah. Is, is there going to be a housing devaluation in major metropolitan areas? Does the West Coast get corrected because it's much more dense than certain parts of the Midwest? Miami certainly going to get hit pretty hard, but does that mean like Naples does? It's still going to be unaffordable, though. We cited the
2: stat on the last show. A combination of things are going to have to happen in order for people to be able to afford the homes, even if values come down 10 to 15%, because it's still unaffordable. Wages mm-hmm. haven't kept up. So um, this may take some time. This is not something that's going to get corrected as fast as the Great Recession did.
0: So... That's the thought I really want to drive home. If you take nothing else from this show, it's that we keep expecting a recession to happen for it to last a couple of quarters, a couple of months, maybe a year, and then the recession goes away, we get back to prosperous times. What if that's not the way this works out? What if we have a very long, very protracted recessionary economy by comparison to classic recessionary economies where we had this massive prosperous economic time of call it about 14 years, double the low end of the average of seven to 10 years, right? Well above the high point of the average of of 10 years. Mm -hmm. What if we have a counterbalance of a recessionary economy that lasts just as long? And what if it's going to be a slow, painful bleed? And what if your realtor out there and you're saying, Chris, there's no world where crash happens? Maybe. But what's a crash defined as a 20% correction over the course of a single year? What if a 40% correction happens over the course of five years? Mm -hmm. What if we've already seen the first phase of those five years in some markets? So stop thinking about things in the classic definitions. We walked into unprecedented stimulus. We walked into unprecedented times. It made a lot of people very wealthy. We're walking into unprecedented endings.
2: Yep, it's true. They're all snowflakes. I say we save this one for the next episode. M&A? Yeah. You won it on the last episode, too. <laughs> I won it on the last episode, but you know why? Because I feel like there's also some stuff that we could dive deep into in this because you've actually gone from, you know, being executive at a company that was once private it ultimately went public, and that's not an experience a lot of people know about. So I think there's some value there.
0: Yeah, never take a company public. <laughs> don't don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're looking to get out of the business and you want out, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But we'll get into
2: that. There's a lot there.
0: For most people. There are rare exceptions. But for most people, mid-sized companies that stay in families that pass down generational wealth generally leave a much wealthier trail.
2: Mm -hmm. But not even from a standpoint of, like, give advice. I'm just saying, like, just to walk people through what that experience was like. Because I remember, you know, all the analysts around. You know all the all the meetings, you know like valuations like how do you even begin to evaluate a company that size?
0: a lot of accountants, yeah, uh, a lot of accounting, a lot of due diligence uh layer in that we're also a highly regulated industry, so as a highly regulated industry, accountants come in and and you're at an additional audit risk for them because not only are you a company that's going public but you're also a highly regulated public company, so there's even more scrutiny on them and their their review of your financials so it's it's um it's complex. It's much more complex than I think people appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then once you go public, the responsibilities from an SEC reporting standpoint, uh, they're, they're substantial. And I think people really underestimate the responsibilities of being transparent and having consistency in what you report to the markets. And we live in this weird world. I know we're going to get into this this episode, but we live in this weird world where people don't care about the logistics of a company as much as they want to invest in you and they want you to be increasingly more profitable every single quarter when you report. That's just not the real world. Mm-hmm. But what they say is, okay, you're going to make less money? Okay, fine, cut expenses to make the same amount of money or better. You know, if you declare a dividend, they don't want the dividend to go away. They want the dividend to stay there. You know, if you, if you do something that's sensational as an executive publicly traded company, the people look at you. Like, look at um, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, the DJ. Mm-hmm. The guy had to stop DJing at night. David Solomon. David Solomon. He had to stop DJing at night. Because it was viewed as a distraction. And I could read from his press release about it. It'd been, he'd been doing it for years. Never for years. Was, never was an issue. Never took a dime. Donated all the money to charity. Mm-hmm. Right? Years he'd done this. It was a hobby. A passionate hobby. It had to be a passion project, right? Because you're doing this at night. Whatever. And somehow he had to write a statement. Issue a press release. Saying that he was stopping that immediately. Because it was a quote distraction. To the core banking franchise. And you know that took place at a board level. Yeah. Someone's going to say, hey, it's got media traction and somebody in the board meeting is going to have the conference. That wouldn't happen at a private company. Yeah.
2: I mean, th- that also wouldn't have happened at a time when there wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. Imagine if there was a 24-hour news cycle back on the day when Jordan was playing and he was gambling and he, let's say he lost a couple games. He'd be like, what's going on? We, we saw you at the casino last night till 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah.
0: That is the rumor why he eventually retired the first time is because of his gambling problem. The NBA caught onto it and said, look, you got two choices. Either we can expose this and blow it up or you can retire mm-hmm. for a, a predetermined period of time which is why he ultimately came back after playing with the white Sox for some time allegedly. yeah allegedly Ale-
2: yeah like tinfoil hats yeah
0: it's not very tinfoily. that's know
2: that yeah, you can read between the lines yeah yeah all right odin you got anything else by the way great question tonight
1: thank you sir you guys mm-hmm. answered all the other questions i had um, we hit 900 followers or subscribers on YouTube. Yeah. yeah which, thank you, everyone.
2: Which is still a small percentage of you listeners out there. So if you haven't, go over to YouTube, subscribe to the channel. It really helps us out. Like, comment, ring that notification bell. Also, if you listen on Apple or Spotify, leave us an honest five-star review. It goes a long way. We really appreciate it. We share the review as soon as it comes in, and it means a lot to us.
0: I'd like to point out, if you don't actually comment or engage, you are seen to be a fake follower. At least that's what people keep telling me anyway.
2: Yeah, we can't be yeah. seen as friends.
0: You, I feel like you're talking specifically to me now.
2: No, I'm talking to the listener.
1: Well, you were looking at him.
0: You were looking at me.
2: I wanted you to also chime in. Do you see them as your friend if they don't leave a comment or a review? Yes, I do.
1: You Really? Yeah, I love all of you. Are you happy with that answer, Said? Uh No, I'm not.
2: That's okay. He he's just wants to play devil advocate with me tonight. <laughs> he's, in a, he's in a bad mood.
0: I'm not in a bad mood. I'm tired. I'm very tired very tired
3: yeah yeah all right you got anything else nope midnight all right midnight yeah that's right late recording call it
0: you know people probably don't know this the original podcast cover that we still have on the show today the blue one yes was modeled after the midnight miracle uh podcast that dave chappelle and talib kwali and uh most F, also known as yasin bay uh, was they were hosting? Mm-hmm. I think it's still going on. They changed the cover since then, but the original cover was the original inspiration for our album cover. The irony is, is I'm pretty sure they don't record their podcast at midnight, and it's a fucking miracle because we do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well done, way yeah. to tie it all together. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome. Maybe the next album cover Odin should be on it.
0: We'll give any professional photos of him, but um, he's Can been going through his actually, weight loss journey. He can't, can't, can't wear finals. Guys. What?
1: Um, we're 11 episodes away from 200. Is I know, right?
0: 200. Pop some bottles? I was going to do mine in the nude. Oh, yeah. Or pop some bottles, Yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure. Yep. <laughs> I'm go with that. We weren't going to do, it. <laughs> yeah, okay. we'll we'll do, do it. it. Pop some
1: bottles and then We'll do a special nude.
0: Patreon episode. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the the 200 would be the number two that Arun would be holding in our belly buttons.
2: <laughs> that would make
0: sense. <laughs> right? I feel like you really stretched that out. Whoa, get that there. I don't know <laughs> what you're doing. Whoa, <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's wildly inappropriate. <laughs> Just... I would never stretch out your belly button. <laughs> That's
2: not what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, good night, everybody.
3: totally what you said. Rune, you got that too, right? Yep. Yep. Bye.